Welcome to this episode of Gospel Conversations and our continuing series on cross and creation. In this episode, we explain how penal substitution is an answer to the wrong question, and we develop a better question with which to frame the cross and salvation. Gospel Conversations, we believe the world needs a new reformation. One that reframes the gospel around creation, not just the deliverance from sin. Our aim is to equip you, the listener, to think things through for yourself and to give you resources to do that by rediscovering some of the forgotten roots of our faith and connecting you to great minds, both ancient and modern. This kind of reframe needs two things. It needs the courage to challenge some old frameworks and the creativity to build new ones. And in so doing, we will keep alive the spirit of reformation, which was always Christianity at its best. Welcome to the next in our series of Cross and Creation. It's actually a subset of the last one uh, when Andrew talked about um, various metaphors of, of atonement and um, came through really with the preferred new metaphor of adoption. I was going to include some of this material uh, during that talk, but I think uh, as time went on, it was better just to leave that as a module and, um, and come back uh, with this as a separate little chunk. Um, I'm really zooming out to look at the big picture. So remember the goal we had in this series, which was to search out a new way, equally powerful um, metaphor or perspective on what happened uh, at the core of the Christian faith at Calvary. Uh, alternative to the penal substitutionary atonement model, which has been very successful in, I think part of its success is that it, it, it markets, it's, it's an easy model to grasp. Um, it appeals to um, our visceral fears of guilt and it appeal, appeals metaphorically to the judicial system, which we understand readily. Um, it is a what I'd call an operating model. It's a model of how God saves us um, and it kind of assumes the why is the forgiveness of sins. Uh, there's one particular major a mission in the in the model of penal substitution, and that is it is a model centered around the cross, but it doesn't give any um, place to the resurrection as a uh, integral part of the mechanism of salvation. Um, this I'm not the only one to say this. Um, it's quite clear once you think about it. And what you're left with is a pretty big gap, which is that the penal substitution model um, hasn't got any soteriology of the resurrection. It's got no, uh, it's not viewing the resurrection as part of the work of salvation. Um, it's perhaps an exit door um, after, the, after the salvation work was finished. That alone should alert us to its uh, inadequacy at the very least. Our approach has always been to, well, let's kind of draw back and ask ourselves um, what question we're 
we're trying to answer or what if penal substitution is the solution what's the problem what's the question it's answering and we, we've done that from day one and i, I want to keep returning to it um anselm uh whom we've talked about a little bit um in his uh, famous essay why god became man um he framed the question this way why was it necessary and a very important word for him necessary he says necessary and logical actually for god to become man um, in other words, he was looking for a way of explaining the necessity that was not just quoting Bible verses, but fitted into a philosophy and theology that could be uh, winsome and persuasive to ordinary people. And I think that is a tremendous uh, goal. I really admire Anselm for that. I did notice... Uh, Recently, when Anne and I were reading Luke, which we're reading at the moment, Jesus use, uses that exact same word in Luke chapter 8 or 9 when he, at a critical point, um, uh, draws out from Peter the confession that you are the anointed of God. Uh, he immediately says it is necessary, necessary for the Son of Man to suffer. So Jesus uses the same, same wording. Uh, necessary for God to become man and by his death restore life to the world. Nice way of putting it. When he could have done this through some other means, through the agency of some other person, an angel or a human being, or simply by willing it. It's, it's a very, it's a good question. Um, I like the way he, he paraphrases it as by his death restore life to the world. It's not quite the same as by his death forgive sins. It's a bit of a broader terminology than that. However, even uh, conceding those points to it, um, it is actually, uh, as we'll find out, an incomplete question because it's starting the questioning really from Genesis 3. Um, and um, the answer is will be a, a framed by Genesis 3. So it's, it's starting inside the system of creation um, and inside the creation uh, that's sinful. Um, what we're trying to do is, well, let's go back to Genesis 1 and position the question in Genesis 1. Now, um, in order to do that, um, and I think it's worthwhile, uh, I hope you don't find it tedious, but there's an important point here, which is, well, how do you ask better questions? Uh, how do you ask better questions? And in what I'm about to say now, um, I'm basing this on um, my long professional experience um, in strategy and innovation and trying to get people to think outside the box, new ways about, about their business operations. Put simply, there's two ways to ask a question, two broad ways. Uh, one's a problem-based way. How do I fix my car? It won't start. The second way is a purpose-based way of asking the same question. And in this case, how do I get to my destination? Now, a subset of that is the car, but it's a subset. So you've broadened the lens by the purpose-based question. Um, However you answer the question will be your solution. But if you think about it, your solution will be um, 
constrained by the way you ask the question. So uh, th those two questions will generate different solutions. Um, the problem-based question, how do I fix my car? Will oh, I'll fix the car by, I don't know, cleaning the spark plugs. Um, the solution will be nested inside the question. It can't go outside the question. Purpose-based questions will generate broader answers, purpose-based answers, and they typically are more innovative. They, they move the range of solutions wider. So uh, we'll get to our destination by catching a train. It's actually nothing to do with the car. That's a simple example, um, but uh, there are very, very profound examples um, that, uh, that I have found about this quite regularly. Um, the one that I always refer to as a um, epic political example is Abraham Lincoln's Gettysburg Address, uh, which was delivered at the, at the conclusion or concluding phase of the American Civil War. Um, and he was on the victor's side and it was the specific occasion was the commemoration of um, uh, a memorial sort of cemetery for the, for the many, many Americans from both sides who died at Gettysburg. Now, when Lincoln got up to give his very short Gettysburg Address, for most people, they, they had a problem in their mind, a bit like the how do I fix the car problem, which might have been something along the lines of, you know, how do we get rid of slavery or accommodate slavery and how do we, the Northerners, impose that system on our vanquished enemies? In other words, seeing the problem uh, the whole problem of the Civil War as a battle over, over slavery um, would have had to produce some kind of solutions within the framework of slavery. That would not have united, that actually would have divided America. Uh, when Lincoln got up, the words that he never mentioned were slavery. He never talked about it. Um, instead, he went to purpose. And he saw the, uh, he went back earlier than the um, formation of the um, American Constitution. He went back before the beginning of the war, he went back to the founding of America as a as the experiment in democracy. That was fragile. That was not just fragile, it was unique in the world. It was the world's first big bet on democracy as a system of government. And so, his question was, how can democracy survive on the earth? Government, famously, of the people, by the people, and for the people. So his question was really a solution to how can humanity institute democracy on the earth when it's never been done before? That's going to be a very, very different range of quote-unquote solutions to the first question. Um, and, and I could give you significant examples where I've used this same methodology um, trying to help people rethink their businesses. Now, the businesses were big. Um, they were not as big as America, but exactly the same principle applied. You don't ask problem-based questions because you'll get narrow answers. You ask purpose-based questions and you'll get better and broader answers. Now, 
One thing to say is they don't actually conflict with each other. They more nest inside each other. It's a matter of levels. The purpose-based question can accommodate um, the problem-based question. It's just the problem-based question is a subset of that purpose-based question. That might sound a little bit like, well, what's that you know, got to do with theology? Um, I hope you don't think that, but just in case you do, or even if you don't, let me just commend to you, I think, very similar thinking that is regularly alluded to in the Bible. And the key word in the Bible is intent. In the, in the epistles, I'm talking particularly of Paul's epistles and the most, um, uh, I think, strongly emphasised example is Ephesians 1, where I think on at least three occasions in the opening words, he has something about all this happening according to God's, not just will and purpose, but desire, his passion and purpose. So intent, which is a purpose-based reasoning, is where Paul seems to go when the system is not even, not an organisation, the system is not, um, not even a country, the system is the cosmos and humanity. He goes to purpose. And within that, God has to work. God's, you know, solution, quote, that Bible doesn't use that word. It's, uh, it's not in a problem-solution uh, framework. In the, the classical era didn't use those commonplaces. But there is a word that is a, a synonym for solution in the New Testament, about which um, I hope um, to say more next year. Um, and that is work. Work. Um, the Greek is energia or energy or work. And, and that is God's um, mechanisms, God's efforts, God's um, operating system for changing the state of affairs. The point about a work is it cannot be commanded. A decree, I just say it and it happens, which is how most of creation happens in Genesis 1. Most of creation but not the creation of humanity, importantly. So we, uh, using that same purpose-based logic, reframed uh, our question from, you know, how does God forgive sins or that class of questions, which PSA is an answer, to a broader question, which is how will God achieve his purpose in creation? after sin and the fall have apparently subverted this purpose. So that's a broad question, but that puts us in the, in, in the right class um, and zone of thinking. Obviously, that immediately leads to other questions. Well, what is that frustrated purpose in creation? Exactly. What is it? What is it? And, and then how might the cross fulfil that purpose? It's, it's broad, but it's reframing. It's reframing the issue and the problem, not as a morality judicial issue, but a creational issue. And there's, there's, a, there's a big difference. Um, I, I, by the way, I keep using the word problem. I don't like it. I prefer the word situation. I think for a variety of reasons, it's broader and better. Um, uh, and I think opens up our thinking better. So uh, that 
idea of a frustrated purpose in Genesis 1 would suggest that we need to think about Genesis 1 as unfinished creation. Not, I think, when I was a younger Christian, I thought it was perfect and Genesis 3 screwed it up. Uh, I no longer think that's true and I'm, I'm not alone in that. Um, so this would invite us to see Genesis 1 and 2 as a beginning, the beginning of a work rather than a finished work. And the finishing of the work is captured in the New Testament by this idea of perfection. Now, again, a bad word for us because it means something that's um, static, precise, without error, no problems in it. That's, that's how we tend to interpret the word. Whereas it, it comes out of the root Greek word of telos, which has much something much better to do with fulfilment, uh, culmination, um, climax of a long effort, flourishing, those, those class of words. Um, and so, you know, where we can um, begin to ask a much, much better class of questions once you go inside uh, creation and Genesis 1 and 2 as being the situation in focus, not Genesis 3. In our journey over the last uh, you know, half dozen or so sessions, we've had some, I think, pretty significant reframings in doing this. Um, firstly, if you start in Genesis 1 and 2, uh, the word salvation will mean different things. In Genesis 3, salvation will be like saving us from our sins, like a rescue. That, that's how it'll be framed. Um, whereas if you use the word salvation, in inverted commas, in Genesis 1 and 2, it'll mean something like achieving the full purpose of creation. It's, it's a very, very... Um, broader goal than the normal rescue plan goal. So that's one reframe, that the rescue from sin, um, the cleansing of the slate, if that's tr true but inadequate. The achievement of whatever God intended in, in the created order is the system in focus. We, uh, as part of our talk, also reframed the scope the scope of whatever that salvation is. And we did it in three big ways that are important. Um, first of all, stretching the scale of the salvation effort from individual people to the cosmos. That is clearly biblical. That's what's in focus. Within the cosmos, then, there's a second uh, reframing that's intrinsic to the Judeo-Christian faith and actually is, um, although it's 2,000 years old, it's really uh, been picked up in modern science by what's called the anthropic principle, which Ron has given some great talks on, that the nature of the cosmos, it is, it is a humanised cosmos. Um, it's anthropic, not mechanical. The humans and the cosmos can't be divorced. Humans have a centralising role in the cosmos. So the scope of the salvation now is much, much broader. From that big scope, 
we then reframed you know, the fall. So you go from Genesis 1 and 2 into Genesis 3 and reframe the fall and sin in the light of this scope. And uh, the, the problem, um, we use the phrase of mission failure, not just moral failure. It's not as if the fall, quote unquote, uh, led to criminal um, culpability on the part of every human being. Um, what the, the essence of it is that humanity ordained for a massive role in the creation failed. We fail to act out our agency. And Andrew, I think quite helpfully and brilliantly, has reframed the sin of Adam, the original sin, um, as not trusting God wants good for me. Um, really believing in a pagan God who's hostile to me. Because if I trust that God wants good for me, then I will converse with God. I will covenant with God, I will submit to God. But if I don't trust that he wants good for me, I'll look for alternatives. That we also, uh, that way of thinking then, which we've also talked about, reframes not just sin, but its consequences. Um, and the, the consequence of sin is often seen, it is a condemnation, but biblically, the critical issue is that the consequence of not believing, not trusting that God wants good for me is a broken relationship. It's a, it's a division rather than moral culpability. It's better thought of as a division between God and humanity. And as a result of that, God's glory departed from uh, the cosmos. His glory departed. And we were left with a new world order. Now, the Bible doesn't use that phrase world order or order or operating system, but it uses a phrase, particularly I'm thinking of Romans, that is clearly just a classical um, corollary of that, and, and that is the word law. So we became subject to what Paul called the law of sin and death. It really is better probably translated in modern parlance to the order, the world order of sin and death became the dominating order of the creation as a consequence of the fall. So death is moved right up into the forefront and sin, sin is the cause, but death is the real issue, the withdrawal of the glory of God from the created order. So from that picture, um, you know, Genesis 4 and 11 flow out rather differently. Um, the phrase original sin uh, is problematic. Uh, um, the idea that Adam's sin was a toxic infection that then passed down to every, by his seed, to every um, child. Uh, it's, a, it's a terrible idea, um, I think. A better word would be originating sin, that the... The sin of Adam broke the covenant and originated the whole problem of a broken relationship um, with the consequence that death came to reign, death being the withdrawal of God's life. And 
sin taking over, like, as I said, a law and a way to think about the death system would be like, what we, you know, or we, for instance, live in physical systems like gravity, where we're in, we're, we're swimming in gravity. It's a, it's, a, it's a law or an order of nature which we swim in. Well, in exactly the same way, but morally and spiritually, we live in a gravitational field called sin and death. That's what Paul is saying. Um, in, in a much earlier series of talks, I did something else with the fall, which was uh, rename the fall as the takeover, which I think is a much better phrase for the fall in this picture, because so far we've just talked about the relation between humanity, Adam and God. The other figure is the devil, um, demonic forces, principalities and powers who are the enemies of God. And the um, Adam trusted and had a alliance, shifted his alliance and trust from a tr alliance and trust with God to an alliance with the devil. Um, and as it were, delivered the rule of the cosmos to the devil. He made a, a, a cooperative alliance between humanity and dark systems to run the show, to run the show. So it, it's, it's uh, that sequential flow of, of a new paradigm around creation and the problems is absolutely vital to, to then rethink what happened at Calvary. Um, and if we take all of that and say, well, how would, given that broader framework, how what would be a develop, even further developed question than the general one about how will God achieve his purposes? And I, I um, proposed something like this. How will God achieve the human-centred rule of the cosmos? So I'm assuming that's his purpose, human centered rule of the cosmos. How will God, another word rule might be a little bit problematic. I'll come back to that in a moment. How will God achieve the human, his purpose of the human centered rule of the cosmos after a takeover of that rule by Satan and the introduction of a perverted rule by an unholy alliance of humanity and Satan's forces? all of which led to a new order over creation and order of sin and death. Amplified question, but that I think is a far more rich and precise question placed against Genesis 1, 2 and 3, reading them as a unit rather than just Genesis 3. Um, and that is going to suggest a very different kind of answer, um, an answer in which the cross will uh, start to make... Um, I think be enriched, it's certainly been enriched in my mind thinking this through. And, and we will also achieve the necessary integration of the resurrection as part of that solution. Yeah, if you, if you think of that question, the kind of answer it's going to imply is something like this, that God will achieve what he wants. He will achieve what he wants, which is human, a human being ruling the cosmos or humanity ruling the cosmos as sons of God. He'll do it by reversing the takeover of the rule of Satan. He has to usurp 
Satan's rule. He's got to usurp Satan's rule of the cosmos within the boundaries of creation's boundaries. He can't. If God wants to continue the creation project, he cannot just jump in by decree and um, delegate and command it all away. He can't do that because if he did that, there would no longer be a human-centered creation. There would be no agency. There would be no agency of God shared in humanity into the created order. The whole purpose would be defeated. And he will do this by initiating uh, uh, the introduction of a new rule, a holy alliance between humanity and God himself that will introduce a godlike rule on the cosmos and lead to a new order over all of creation, a new order of spirit and life. So that's kind of the boundaries that this question implies of the solution or work necessary to be done. Finish off with um, where within those within that framework, um, Andrew was positioning dominion and um, adoption as do uh, the governing metaphors for the work um, of Calvary. So I want to just finish by saying a little bit about let's position that metaphor of adoption inside this broader framework. Um, I mean, it really fits quite obviously because adoption is adoption as sons. And the word there is not just talking about a child getting adopted into a family as we might, but it's got a much stronger connection with the idea of inheritance. That um, the, the key goal and achievement of what happened at Calvary and of the resurrection is the adoption of sons as sons of humanity, sons of God. That is utterly central to the salvation effort. It's not something that's consequent upon. I think I used to probably in my mind think, you know, when I was um, unthinkingly uh, concurring with penal substitution, all the, you know, the cross deals with forgiveness and it kind of gets rid of sins and now there's a journey of sanctification starts and somewhere down the road um, the idea of we might graduate from just being children of God through new birth into sons of God and heirs and perhaps that's rewards in heaven and something like that. So in other words, the adoption of sons was put off into the future as a reward system, whereas, whereas I think what this thinking does and what Andrew was suggesting is, no, 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 it's actually very important to see the cross and Calvary as the means, the mechanism of by which adoption of son, as sons occurred. Um, and he he talked about dominion uh, and it's a word that's, dominion's a good word because it's really talking about this human-centred rule. It's a word that some people have in the modern world problems over because it, it can actually seem to be a top-down hierarchical dominating kind of rule, the word dominating obviously coming from dominion. We've got those problems with it. Um, perhaps agency is a better word. Uh, that, that's a, certainly a, a candidate alternative. But dominion or agency is the outcome of the human-centred rule. So just finishing with five points about dominion, uh, 
it cannot, the first one is it cannot be autonomous. Any, if it is autonomous, it's just tyranny and the expression of ego. Um, it's a system of unfettered, unrestrained free will. Um, that's not a biblical view, and it's not even a view that I think stacks up from human systems. Everyone's got to get their dominion from someone. And what that introduces, the second point, is authority. Anyone who's got dominion needs to be given it by some body of people or somebody. You know, If you're the CEO of a company, you might have dominion over the company, but you don't get your authority from yourself. You get it from the board. You get it from the uh, uh, the mission and uh, um, policy structures of the company that it's given to you so so authority from outside the system has to be given so dominion is twin with authority or authorization uh, think about the centurion who came to Jesus and uh, he was um, I forget where it is but he he wanted his son to be healed um, I think it was his son. And he didn't really need Jesus to go. His, his words to Jesus were, I'm a man under authority. I say to one, go, and he goes, come, and he comes. So he had dominion, he had commandment, but he knew what it was to live under authority. And Jesus commended him for that because really he was saying, I know what it's like to live in a system where the authority is given to me by someone else. And he had a glimpse through to this is the creational order that, Jesus is advocating. The giver of authority, the giver of authority in the whole Judeo-Christian system marvellously is the Lord. He has given authority to humanity and, and humanity has no dominion without that authority and without that relationship with the giver. Um, that's what was broken at the fall. So we kind of lost dominion because we broke relationship and therefore we lost authority. Uh, final two points are rather sweet, which is this conception um, makes the essential nature of God as the giver. The whole system is a gift. Uh, including the authority, including the dominion, including the responsibility. It's all part of a package of a gift. He is the giver. And giving is generosity. And giving is love. It's absolute love. And this is positioning God as giver and lover of the system, not as the judge, not as its judge, not as its auditor, which the penal substitution model does, but as its giver of everything. Now, because I'm giving everything, I will judge, but my judgment will be educational to achieve the purposes I have given. Um, for the gift to be realised and for the whole creation to be joined in shalom with God, God-giving God dominion, God giving, God having authority and giving authority to have dominion is not enough. Every gift has to be responded to, otherwise it doesn't work. Every, every offer has to have a response, otherwise there's no system out of it. There's no agreement. 
It's two-way traffic. We know that. I mean, I've just been through with, with my, um, with the technology startup that I'm the chairman of, we've just issued a new class, a new group of shares to new investors. We send them out an offer. They, they come back and say, I agree to the offer. It's, it's got to be two ways on both sides. They've got to agree. We've got to agree. Um, and, and that's a tremendous picture of the um, relationship between God and humanity that was broken in the takeover, but is restored in the, uh, is the second Adam. And as a result of that, as human, once humanity responds to the giver, once it turns out once any human being, it needed one, um, then, it, then humanity that now connects the creation to all of the power and life of God. So that's, uh, I know it's a package, I know it's a bit, um, a bit uh, logical and sequential what I've been saying, but I think it's very important because it, I've, I've tried to give, summarise really the journey we've been on in a, in, a, in a sense of an ascending logic, that really a bit like Jacob's ladder takes us up, 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 up to begin to connect heaven and earth again and see the cross and um, and creation and new creation as the the rungs on the ladder.